Now with a view to God's blessing, let's uh, turn to the passage that we read in the first book of Samuel. And chapter 17. And reading in verse 11, after Goliath spoke, we read that when all, when Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. And again, if you go down to verse 24, similarly, all the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were dreadfully afraid. So the people were dismayed and greatly afraid. Dismayed, which means really shattered and broken and greatly afraid. Now, as I mentioned before the reading, our theme is the uh, spiritual conflict in which all the Lord's people are engaged and I really want to look with you at this very famous contest in scripture which is I suppose you could say the original David and Goliath contest and I I say that because of course this contest has passed into popular culture and language so that any encounter between mismatched opponents in any walk of life is sometimes referred to as a David and Goliath encounter. But it's easy just to think of that in terms of uh, small people just defeating greater people. What's happening here is, of course, far more important and profound than that. And uh, with the Lord's blessing, I hope we will understand a little better the important lessons that we're being taught in this passage of Scripture. Now, Of course, it's very well known, and I suppose we could say that most of the lessons are ones that maybe lie on the surface, and we know them already. But it's important to remember, for one thing, that uh, this passage works on more than one level. For example, we have to remember that David is more than himself. He's even more than just a representative believer. He is the man whose name is David, the beloved of the Lord. That is what his name means. And he is already, at this point, anointed secretly by Samuel uh, to be the next king. And so we need to remember that he doesn't just stand for himself, and he's not just a representative believer like us, but he is a type of of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. In other words, whenever he goes forth on behalf of God, the church was to understand that here was a picture of their anointed king to come. And those who were spiritual amongst them, by paying close attention to the life of David, would recognize important truths regarding their saviour, who was indeed to come. So we have to remember to look at David in that light too. Now I want to begin just by setting the context 
briefly for you. At this time, the Philistines were recovering from some painful defeats themselves. Um, After many years dominating Israel and dominating Israeli culture, God raised up two powerful judges, uh, Samson and then, more or less at the same time, Samuel. And both Samson and Samuel were able to defeat the Philistines and to restore liberty uh, and spiritual freedom for God's people, Israel. And it was a time of revival and blessing, which was crowned at Mizpah when Samuel raised a stone called Ebenezer and said, Hitherto has the Lord helped us. At that point, there was a national return to God, and the Philistines were defeated. But years have passed, and already the Philistines are sensing that God's strength is not with his people, or to put it another way, that his people are not living in his strength, but by their own might and their own power. They've sensed a weakness in Saul, who is already gradually losing touch not just with God but with reality and becoming unhinged and so the Philistines are going to test the strength of God's people and they move to the valley of Elah ready for a confrontation now Israel of course tries to respond and going back again to where we were on our first uh, gathering after I came here They are trying to respond with human resources. Not by the Spirit of God, but by their own might and by their own power. There's something within them that doesn't feel that they are able to accomplish this task. They're weak and they are afraid, but they gather under the leadership of Saul on the other side of the valley of Elah. There are two hills. The Philistines are camped on one slope and the Israelites are camped on the other slope. And so again, the Philistines and the Israelites are meeting. Now let's always remember, and keep it really at the forefront of our minds, that the Philistines and the Israelites are more than Philistines and Israelites. The Philistines represent in the Bible the forces of evil and the enemies of God. And the Israelites, of course, represent the church of God in all ages, including true believers and those who are just professing faith in God. So, in other words, the Philistines represent, first of all, the power of the devil himself, the God of this world, the prince of the power of the air, the enemy of God's people. The Philistines also represent the world, as it is animated and invigorated by the prince of the power of the air, the world that is hostile against God and his people. And, of course, the Philistines represent sin itself. Sin, as it were, personified. Its power against the church, against you and against me. So the Philistines represent all that. And again, the Israelites represent everyone who is not in that camp. Those who have come out of the world 
and those who have enlisted on the Lord's side under the captain of their salvation they have come out of the world and they are now ready to fight the good fight of faith as we saw last time they are called to shine brightly like lights in a dark world and God has given them spiritual weaponry to enable them to fight this good fight to the finish and we read that weaponry in Ephesians 6 you know it well the word of God the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, the breastplate of righteousness, these are all parts of the spiritual armour that God has given his people to enable them to stand apart, to fight the good fight of faith and to do God's work in this world. So that's who these armies represent. Now friends, there's always a conflict in this world between the light and the darkness, the good and the evil, or the power of God and the power of the devil. And both sides, if you like, are seeking uh, control of the land. The land here, of course, is the land that flows with milk and honey. This is the land that God gave to his people, but the Philistines don't want his people to have. They resent losing a square inch of any territory, as as the devil does. He hates to lose control in a culture, in any culture's institutions. He hates to lose control in a human heart. He doesn't like to lose control over one square inch of the human heart. He always wants possession, and he wants possession of what, of course, really belongs to God. God is Lord of all the earth. Christ is Lord of Lords and King of Kings. The nations of this world have been given to Christ as his inheritance. The nations belong to him. The governments belong to him. The institutions and the cultures, the human hearts, the families, the schools, everything belongs to God. Christ has a right of lordship over every square inch. But every inch the devil lose, he wants back. Sure, you know in yourself in different walks of life, whether it is sport or anything, uh, when you have a really tenacious opponent, and, and they just never give up, and they never stop, because they're consumed with some kind of motivation. Now, we know the devil's motivation, which is just hatred. Hatred. And he's constantly trying to gain back even the ground that he's lost. That's why you, as a Christian are a special target for him. He he may have you today, if you're you're an unbeliever, he he might have you, uh, he has you under control and he doesn't have to work hard at it perhaps. I wish that wasn't the case. I hope it's not the case, but maybe he doesn't have to work hard at it. You may have noticed that if if you're moving in the direction of the gospel, there's some kind of force against you. That's it's good that you notice that, but it's important that you recognize who that is and what he's doing. He, he's waking up against you because he sees you moving onto what he sees as enemy, enemy territory. Even like the, the young boy that was going to be healed of the evil spirit, when his father took him to Jesus and when the healing was imminent, the spirit convulsed the boy and he fell down 
like dead at the feet of Christ. It, it always happens. The nearer you come to Christ, the more the, more the devil tries to stop that. The, the more he tries to stop you coming to him. So, uh, And when you become a Christian, again, he knows that there is something wonderful in seeing a professed believer come down. Hence the strength of his assault against Job who was so righteous and so godly and so well known throughout the world to be so righteous and godly. Well, he spent every bit of strength in his arsenal, every bit of equipment in his arsenal to bring Job down. So you can expect him to fight against yourself as a professing believer. But this conflict goes on all the time. The God of this world and the God who is indeed the true God. Now God has said that if his people walk in faith and obedience, he will prosper them. But if they start to live for themselves, if they start to heap up treasure in this world and stop laying up treasure for God, he will allow the world to rise up and to oppress them. That's the real significance of the rise of the Midianites and the rise of the Amalekites and the rise of the Philistines. It's not because they are so powerful themselves. Well, they they are, of course, powerful, but they were not more powerful than, than the children of God had they retained their faith in God. Had the children of Israel been full of God's might and power, these worldly forces would never have gained the ascendancy. But God allows the world to come back when the church starts to live like the world. That's always what happens. And especially in covenanted nations like our own, that is what happens. Now here, in our passage, and at this point in history, we need to recognize the weakness of the church of God. Now as I mentioned, it's not that long since they had reclaimed their spiritual liberty and their spiritual life under Samson and Samuel. But then, pretty quickly, it took a fatal turn. It's one of the interesting things how sometimes a a genuine movement of God and a real revival can sometimes be fairly quickly followed by a rapid slide away. Now, sometimes that's not the case. I think, in fact, too, just to stay very local, I think the revival that swept over, over Lewis itself um, in, in the 1820s was a revival that had a very long-lasting power in its wake. I think that's very much the case. But on other occasions, it, it can fade away, away very quickly, and it did amongst Israel. It wasn't too long since the national revival under Samuel when they said, we want a king. And they wanted a king because other nations had a king. Notice how quickly the, the church is affected by the world, how it lives, the decisions it makes, the strategies it uses. Well, they have kings, kingdoms, palaces. We, we have these judges. Can, can we not move to a kingship? And of course, Samuel told them no that the Lord had protected and kept them with their simplicity of government. But they said, yes, we want a king. And 
God finally said to Samuel, give them a king. Let, let them choose one. And of course they chose one. And they chose the kind of king they wanted. Saul, head and shoulders above everybody else, looked like a military commander and looked like the kind of person who would impress kings in other nations. Because the church, when it starts to play that game, wants to impress the world. That it can do the world's things just as well as the world can do them. Look at our king. Well, indeed, look at him. Here he is now. He stopped consulting with God. He's no longer head and shoulders above anybody. He's not listening to Samuel, who guided him in his youth and in his early days. He has effectively exiled the prophet out of his life. He's put the word of God out of his life. And the tragic thing is that he's now reaching the point where God's not communicating with him either. And just a few short years after this, you have the pathetic, solemn picture of Saul, the great king of Israel, consulting a witch to try and find out what's going to happen in the battle the following day. Why? Because God's not speaking to him anymore. And why is God not speaking to him anymore? Because he never listened anyway whenever God spoke. And that's the risk we always run when we sit under the word of God. And when we're moved and challenged by the word of God, we run the risk, unless we respond properly, of God not speaking ever again. God not moving us and God not challenging us. And that's the sad condition that Samuel found himself in. And he's well on his way to it at this point. And it's no surprise with a leader like that that the people carried on drifting away from God. And the result was that the Philistines were back in the ascendancy and the people of God were in cultural bondage. What do I mean by that? Well, we're told, for example, in chapter 13, that there was no blacksmith in Israel. Now, um, even those who are older amongst themselves will remember the importance of a blacksmith in a village or in a town. No blacksmith, because the Philistines had said, in, in case the Hebrews make swords or spears. So instead the Israelites would go down to the Philistines to sharpen their plowshare, their axes, their sickles and their mattocks. And the charge for sharpening was a pim for the plowshares, which is very expensive, um, and so on for the forks and the axes, and to set the points of goats. Anything you wanted done involving metal or work, you go to the Philistines. They, they kept the Israelites in check. That's a picture of a people who have lost their independence. A people who have wanted the world and now God's given them the world and they've lost everything that, that really mattered to them. It's what happens to ourselves when we forsake the Lord and we watch the institutions fall one by one. You watch our governments. Where is the Christian voice? It's not there. If it's raised, it's silent. There's no room for Christ, no room for Christianity in politics or in education. Education is as important, well, if you, I shouldn't say that, um, but in one sense it's as important to Satan as it is to Christ, in one sense. 
He cares as much about the education of our children in one way as Christ does. He knows the importance of schooling. He knows, first of all, the importance of plunging it from positivity into neutrality and then into enmity. He knows how to play that game and he plays it well. And the only way you can get a word in is on their terms. You can say something about Christ if they permit it. You can say something about the gospel if it's approved by them. They have the stamp, they have the control, and they have the say. Why? In a nation that was established on the word of God, why? In a nation that was covenanted with God, why? In a nation where the education system was positively designed to promote the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, why? Because we have sought that. We've sought it. There was something in the world that we envied and we let it all go. We've exchanged a birthright for a mess of pottage. And the Lord's people in, in this kind of situation feel that they can't do anything about it. Which is not true, but they feel they can't. And sad to say, many of them are just content with it because it's cheaper and it's more peaceful. It's just easier to have the Philistines in control than to be fighting them every day. Even churches won't allow teachers into their own colleges unless they are certified by secular universities, and people think that's okay. Oh, you've got to have a doctorate from such and such a university. Really? Even in Christ's day, people didn't want to accept him because he had not been trained in the usual way. Neither was John the Baptist trained in the usual way. Is it really necessary for secular universities to stamp your training before you teach in a church college? Dear me, when people think that's okay, where have we come to? And this bondage is so severe that sometimes to suggest an alternative is unacceptable and you become a troublemaker. When God raised up Samson to call Israel back to liberty and spiritual independence, Israel were annoyed that he was annoying the Philistines. On one famous occasion, the Philistines just target their resources on Samson, which is sometimes what the devil does. He just targets a certain person. They targeted their resources on Samson. And the men of Judah knew where Samson was hiding. And 3,000 of the most powerful men in Judah came out to Samson and said, Look, um, this has got to stop because you are irritating the Philistines. Do you not know that they are our rulers? Now, the Philistines were the tribe of the lion. The Philistines were the tribe from which Christ himself was to come. They should have been proud of who they were as the Lord's people with their calling and their duty to spread the good news and the kingdom of God everywhere without fear or favor and in the strength and power of God. And here they come to Samson and say, you're annoying the Philistines. Do you not know that they are our bosses? Do you not know that they're in charge of our smiths? They're in charge of our education? They're in charge of our politics? Do you not know that? And what did the 3,000 men do? They bound cords on Samson's hands and they hand them over to the Philistines. What a picture of a church 
that keeps resisting the Holy Spirit and is just drowning in its own apathy and lukewarmness. Samson, of course, under the power of God, snaps the bonds and single-handedly, when the Philistines are in flight, chases them and knocks a thousand of them dead with the jawbone of an ass. And it's God's way of saying, look, there's no need for this bondage and this fear and this weakness. The power of God is available. And the truth of God as a weapon will, will administer defeat to the enemy instead of cowering in fear. But at that point, nothing changed. Judah just carried on as it was before. It's amazing sometimes how Christ can call upon us and we remain lethargic. It's amazing how the Holy Spirit can visit us and stir us, but we just choose to lie down in comfort still. It's one thing to do that, as it were, in ordinary circumstances, but when God, can I use the expression, makes the effort to draw especially near and to speak especially closely, and you're still like that? Like the church, like the woman in the Song of Solomon, chapter 5, lying in her bed, She's asleep, but her heart awakens because she hears the voice of her beloved at the door and he puts his hand through the latch and he deposits a mirror on the latch. She's still awake, she's still asleep. She she makes excuses and she says, I've taken my robe off, I I can't put my robe on again. I've taken my shoes off, I've washed my feet. How can I defile them again? Well, it's not difficult, is it? It's not impossible to get up and put your robe on. It's not impossible to slip your shoes back on your feet. But when you're of a lazy spirit and the apathy has got a hold of you, everything spiritual seems so difficult to do. Even when you know it's your beloved, even when you recognize his voice, and even when you feel a stirring of his power, it's, oh, I can't, I can't. Uh, I'm comfortable. That's the situation of Israel. Until at last the Spirit of God roused them out of it. But their choice was to hand Samson over. One of the difficulties is, you see, that the unbelieving world is a lot more hostile than we realize it to be. The reason for that is that the devil hates God and the Christian. And that's why when you sink into this situation, first of all, you don't think it's particularly bad. Okay, there's not many Christians in Parliament, there's not many Christians uh, able to speak the word of God in the education system and so on, and in all our institutions, in law, in universities, it's okay. Yeah, it still is still survivable all right but watch the trajectory and it's amazing how quickly the tipping point comes when you become an offender for a word and where people hunt you and when people don't find it difficult to start locking up Christians just because they are spreading the gospel first time it's done there's a little bit of a ruffle but but even the Lord's people aren't really too agitated about it just look and learn from the history of our own nation the devil doesn't stop 
until he grinds you to the dust. He wants you as a Christian pulverized. He wants the church pulverized and outlawed. He will not be content until this nation is a North Korea. And nations can become North Korea. How do we know that? Because there is a North Korea. Just as there was a China and so on. So this conflict is very, very serious. This time there's a new dimension to it. The Philistines suggest that this war should be settled by a contest between two champions. It's an unusual way. And God permits it. I say God permits it because God's in control of the whole thing. The reason God permits it is because he has chosen this battle to be the one that symbolizes the the greatest confrontation between darkness and light, between the power of God and the power of the evil one, which is, of course, the confrontation between Christ and the God of this world. Christ and Satan, as they came together on the cross of Calvary, where the whole artillery of hell was against the Lord Jesus Christ on his own. By himself he fights, and by himself he purges our sins. But he is confronted with the God of this world. That battle was fought decisively 2,000 years ago. Notice I'm saying decisively. There's a lot of confrontations going on between good and evil everywhere you look. But make no mistake, the outcome is not undecided. The Lord of Lords and the King of Kings will have this world and he will have the glory and the day will come when every knee shall bow to him and every tongue, even the tongue of the devil itself, will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. In other words, if you are not on Christ's side today, then you may feel that you are on the winning side. You're not. You're not. And you've no idea how painful the loss will be when the battle is over. Skirmishes can be lost, but the battle's already been decisively won. People compared it to um, D-Day and V-E-Day. I mean, there's a point at which the battle's over. It just becomes a mopping up operation. <laughs> there's, a, there's a very real sense, although the warfare is intense, there's a very real sense in which... Ever since 2,000 years ago, it's a mopping up operation. It's won. The victory is won. The question is, whose side are you on? Are you today on the Lord's side, victorious, with heaven as your inheritance? Or are you on the dark side? Are you still on the devil's side, with hell as your inheritance? Who wants a hellish inheritance? But to live without Christ is to be choosing that. So God permits this conflict to be between these two combatants. And when they stride forward, David, as we'll see tonight, uh, Goliath, as we'll see just in a second, I want you to think of a greater than Goliath. Think of the God of this world. And I want you to think of a greater than David, who is the beloved, the Christ himself. Let me just look with you briefly at Goliath before we close. Of course, he's a giant. The children know he's a giant. 
All of you will probably remember learning this as one of the first stories that you learned from the Bible, how David met a giant. There are two types of giants. There are, first of all, just big men. Uh, someone like Angus MacAskill of Burnley, uh, who became famous in the Barnum circuses. He used to tour with Tom Thumb beside him. You can see several photographs online. Um, Angus MacAskill was nearly eight feet tall. Uh, the palm of his hand was eight inches wide. Uh, his chest was 80 inches. To give you a point of reference, I'm 42. His chest is twice the size. The man was really big, and you have such people. Other kinds of giants are what are sometimes referred to as pathological giants. They're giants because of genetic deformities. Goliath was like that. We, we read in Chronicles that he had a brother, that Goliath of Gath had a brother who had six digits uh, on all his limbs. Six toes, both legs, six digits on both hands. That's your clue that, that there was genetic deformity in the family. There's a, an ancient Sumer amongst um, the relief paintings that you find. There's a relief painting of a man with uh, six digits on one hand. Anne Boleyn, who was Henry VIII's wife, had six digits on one hand. But here's your deformity. So, so these people are huge. One of the reasons they died out, I mean, they're discovering more and more evidence of these pathological giants that were once significant in the world. They died out because of the mutations which eventually killed them. But here you have a pathological giant. And Goliath is a colossus of a man. He's nearly nine feet tall. I mean, two and three-quarter metres. I mean, just imagine that. His armour weighs 50 kilos. The point of his spear, the iron point of his spear, weighs seven kilos. But he's not really so much... Well, he is a pathological giant, absolutely so, but he is meant, he's meant to function here as a spiritual giant. Not in the good way. We refer to people in the past like Brainerd and Martin and Edwards and many of the Puritans as spiritual giants. And we've known spiritual giants ourselves, people who were close to the Lord, people who were strong in battle and people who made such an impression upon us because they lived so close to God. They were giants. This man is a spiritual giant on the dark side, on the dark side, because he comes from the family of Anak. You find them in the book of Numbers. They dominated the land of Canaan before God's people took hold of it. And their headquarters was Mount Hebron. And that was the part you'll remember that Caleb wanted to conquer for God's people. When Israel were coming into the land of promise, Caleb wanted to conquer Hebron. And God's people said, we'll never do it. And for that unbelief, they were 40 years in the wilderness. When the time uh, came to go back to the land, Caleb got a second chance. He was 85 years old, and they drove the giants out of the land. <laughs> there's, a lot, there's a lot in that. But in any case, the family of Anak were driven out of Hebron, and they settled in Gath, where the Philistines were. And here, Goliath represents the power of the devil that's against you. And it's so great. I mean, as he winds his way for 40 days, 
every single day humiliating God's people, uttering this challenge to God's people as he, as he slithers his way down the slope with his bronze armour of scale on top of scale in layers, shimmering in the sun. He would look for all the world like a serpent, representing a serpent as he does. Just the power of evil challenging the God, the people of God. And he's got this aura of impregnability and invincibility. And that's sometimes how the devil, well, it's always how the devil wants you to see him. Because there will be a Goliath in your own life. Let's say it's a besetting sin that's got a hold of you. And it's maybe got a hold of you for a few years. And it's keeping you down. And you think, there's no relief from this. There's no relief from this power or from this besetting sin. Maybe it's the Goliath of unbelief, which is very often the besetting sin. The belief that God isn't going to work or that God isn't going to do anything or that maybe God has done something for others, but he's not going to do it for me and he's not going to help me and he's not going to help my family and my situation. Or the Goliath of a hostile culture where the unbelievers rule And the name of Christ is increasingly dragged through the mud. And you feel, what can be? This is invincible. It's so powerful. Oh, yes, it is. And it's easy to be afraid of it. But I'll tell you what, friend, we all need to resolve how we're going to confront sin and the power of Satan in our lives and in our homes. We all need to confront it. Are we going to pray or not? Are we going to believe or not? Are we going to witness for Christ in this world, in our jobs, in our offices, in our places of recreation? Are we going going to be Christians active in the field or not? We all need to resolve that. If, If we choose the ease of the world, watch we don't perish with the world. And, and the rise of the Philistines and Goliath here, make no mistake, is a test for Israel. That's why the time Goliath challenges them is 40 days. 40, immediately you think of 40 in Scripture, 40 years testing in the wilderness. Jonah preached 40, uh, telling Nineveh that 40 days were given before judgment would come. It's always opportunity, testing. It's always God saying, what will you do? What's your response? So for 40 days, God is saying to Israel, what is your response? And we know what the response should be. Why? Because he who is in us is greater than he who is against us. Is that not right? Do we believe that? Do we believe that the glory of Goliath, great as it is, is absolutely eclipsed by the glory of the Son of Man at the right hand of God? Do we believe that? Do we believe that the power of Satan, great as it is, is eclipsed by the power of the one who says that all power in heaven and earth has been given unto me? And powerful as the devil's weapons are, do you believe that anywhere near as powerful as the weapons that God has given you of prayer and of the word of God? Of course, we believe that, but sometimes we don't act like it. 300 years before, when the spies went up and they went into the land, they saw the giants, the Anakim. And 10 spies came back famously and said to Moses, This invasion is not on. 
to, it's, it's just not on. It can't be done. Two spies said, of course it can be done. There's great power against us all, right? But the land does flow with milk and honey. And God has said that if we go up in faith, we will prevail. And the ten said, no. They said, in fact, what they said is really revealing. Can I, can I just uh, read it to you very briefly? My, my time has gone on, but just if you bear with this for a second. Um, they gave the land a bad report. Uh, they said, they, we, we went to the land. It does flow with milk and honey, and here's its fruit. But the people are strong. The cities are fortified. And as well as that, we saw the descendants of Anak there. The Amalekites are in the south. The Hittites, the Jebusites in the mountains. And the Canaanites by the sea. Caleb quieted them and said, let's go up and take it. But the men said, we're not able. Because they're stronger than us. And then it says... Um, we were like grasshoppers in the sight of the children of Enoch. And listen to this. And we were like grasshoppers in our own sight. Now, that's a very revealing statement. We look to these children of Israel like grasshoppers. And you know what? We look to ourselves like grasshoppers. Well, so you will. If, if all you do is compare yourself to the world out there, you'll feel like a grasshopper. You'll feel like a nothing, like an insect that can be squashed. <coughs> Unless you remember who's, who's sending you to battle and who is our commander-in-chief. The result, the whole church believed the ten. You know that. And the result was 40 years wandering in a wilderness. Same here. Let's effectively close with this, with our text. If you notice carefully in chapter 16, chapter 17... Verse 11, when Saul and Israel heard the words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. When they heard the words that Goliath said, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Greatly afraid speaks for itself. The word dismayed means to be completely shattered and broken. When they heard Goliath, they were shattered, they couldn't take it. Every time the world spoke, they felt crushed. Verse 24. And the men of Israel, when they saw the man, they fled from him and were dreadfully afraid. They cowered back. That's what it means. They, they just cowered back at the world and its power. And Saul, well, he's not able to lead them anymore. We're told solemnly in chapter 16 that the Lord had left him and an evil spirit was troubling him. Oh, friends, these are things to avoid. These are things to avoid. The Lord had left him and the evil spirit was troubling him. And there was no Samuel to guide him because he didn't want Samuel anymore. In fact, there was no one amongst the sons that the church had brought forth who was able to guide her. Except that God did have someone. And in a way he's a nobody, but he's a somebody because he was living close to God. And anybody close to God is a somebody. And he just turns up at the right time. And in God's hand, 
he turns it around. We'll see God willing how he does this tonight. Let us pray. O Lord our God, even if we are little ones, you can make them a thousand. And the weakest can become as David in that day. And the prophet spoke of such a day, and we all in ourselves feel very weak. And we are prone to discouragement when we ought not to be, when the Lord of hosts is upon our side. Help us to rediscover what it means to start to live more close to the Lord and to sit more loosely by the things of this world. And enable us then to observe how our words and our lives will become stronger in your hand. Oh, forgive our lethargy and our lukewarmness, our sloth and our frequent indifference, and help us to cleave more close to the Lord. In Christ's name, Amen. Our last uh, singing is in Psalm 60. Psalm 60 from the beginning, O Lord, thou hast rejected us and scattered us abroad. Thou justly hast displeased been. Return to us, O God. There's confession there. The earth to tremble thou hast made. Therein didst breaches make. Do thou thereof the breaches heal. Because the land doth shake. Everything seems to be falling apart and in utter chaos. But the church here is recognizing that she has provoked the Lord. Unto thy people thou hard things hast showed, and on them sent, and thou hast caused us to drink wine of astonishment, and very often we are astonished at uh, what has come upon us. And yet, and this takes us, God willing, to where we'll be tonight, a banner thou hast given to them who thee do fear, that it by them, because of truth or for the sake of truth, displayed may appear. The opening four stanzas, let's stand and sing them.
Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.